Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to If Then the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. My co-host, April Glazer, is off this week. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, November 13th. My co-host, April Glazer, is off this week, but to make it up to you, we have two guests today, and they both are great. Our trusty producer, Max Jacobs, is also here to help out, and he'll fill in for April with a tab at the end of the show. First, we're going to talk about the employee uprising at Google and the changes that it and other tech companies have made to their sexual harassment policies in response. Joining me for that segment will be Caroline O'Donovan, senior technology reporter for BuzzFeed News. She was there to cover the employee walkouts in person and has continued to report on the fallout from them. Then we'll talk about a story that's been making headlines for months, finally reached its culmination this week with a big announcement. That would be Amazon's HQ2 contest. Or maybe now it's HQ2.5, or HQ2 and 3, HQ2A and 2B. Whatever you want to call it, we'll talk about the company's decision to open not one, but two new headquarters. One will be in Arlington, Virginia, just outside D.C., the other in Long Island City, Queens, just across the East River from Manhattan. That decision, of course, prompted an outcry from critics around the country, not to mention all the cities that weren't chosen. Here to help me make sense of all this will be Tim Bartik, He's a senior economist at the Upjohn Institute for Employment Research, and he's done some fascinating work on the incentives that cities offer to companies to try to get them to locate there, and whether it really pays off for their residents in the long run or not. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting things we saw on the web this week. All right, so I should mention we're now a week removed from midterm elections, which April had been following intensely, and we may look back on them a bit more when she rejoins us next week. In the shows leading up to the big night, we talked about both online misinformation and potential problems with voting technology. Suffice it to say, both of those issues proved relevant. We did at least see some progress from Facebook in particular on the misinformation front. That's according to multiple studies that found less fake news on the platform in 2018 than was there in 2016 and 2017. If you're interested, I wrote a piece for Slate last week headlined, Why Social Media's Misinformation Problem Will Never Be Fixed. It's not very optimistic, I know, but actually the takeaway was that barring some fundamental changes to the structure of social media, this is going to be, for the foreseeable future, a problem to be managed rather than solved. And Facebook is working on that. That's, I guess, all we can ask for now. So as you know by now, if you're a regular listener, we will absolutely have more to come on the topics of online platforms and misinformation. But right now, I want to move away from social media and the elections and talk about Google. On November 1st, employees in Google offices around the world staged a walkout. There were walkouts at its offices in Singapore, Japan, Israel, Switzerland, Germany, the UK, and Ireland. But the biggest walkouts were reported from its California headquarters in Mountain View and San Francisco and its New York offices. The walkout was prompted in part by a New York Times story about Andy Rubin, the so-called father of Android. The Times reported that Google had received a credible claim of sexual misconduct by Rubin against another Google employee. And instead of firing him, 
the company paid him a $90 million exit package, gave him a hero's farewell, and kept the whole thing quiet. Following the walkouts on November 8th, Google announced changes to its misconduct policy. In particular, it said that it would end binding arbitration in sexual harassment cases. Facebook followed suit shortly thereafter. And we're lucky enough to be joined now by somebody who's been watching all of this very closely. Caroline O'Donovan is a senior technology reporter for BuzzFeed News. She's forged something of a unique beat in her time at BuzzFeed, focusing specifically on labor issues in Silicon Valley and the tech industry. She was at the walkouts last week, where she reported that employees were holding signs such as, hey, hey, ho, ho, creepy dudes have got to go. Some were holding signs that said, don't be evil, which of course is a wry reference to what used to be Google's unofficial motto. We've heard that one thrown back at the company quite a bit lately. Anyway, we're lucky to have Caroline with us now, joining us via Skype in San Francisco. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, I will say that my favorite sign from the walkouts last week was probably the one that said, not okay, Google, which is a joke, I think, about uh, Google Home (laughs) Voice Assist. That's right. I used to have to say, okay, Google all the time to my Google Home before I traded it in for an Alexa. Okay. Let's talk first about what the immediate cause of the walkout. There was this New York Times story, which I've mentioned about Andy Rubin, about Google's handling of sexual harassment cases. Um, What did the employees who walked out want? What were their demands? Uh, Yeah. So I think one thing that's interesting about that New York Times story uh, is that some of the information, some of the allegations, you you know, had already been uh, bubbling around for a couple of years. And Google employees were aware in some cases of things that had happened. The actual financial settlement that Andy Rubin in particular got, I don't think had been made public. Um, But it's interesting to think about, I think, how the climate inside the tech industry and then the the Me Too movement more nationally kind of influenced how people interpreted that story, I think, um, and and led to the sort of severity in the way that people responded, which, of course, um, was the walkout, which included a list of demands. So one of the first things the employees wanted was an end to forced arbitration um, when it comes to cases of sexual harassment. So allowing employees and former employees to actually sue the company. Um, they wanted a change in in process for reporting sexual misconduct and sexual harassment. So a specific there is like they wanted to be able to bring a support person with them to HR when reporting an incident. Someone kind of described that to me as like when you're going into HR, sometimes it feels like you against the whole company, just one person against this gigantic firm. And right. uh, just having someone there to support you, kind of like a patient advocate in the hospital, right, helps helps sort of to make that process feel a little bit stronger on the side of the complainant, I think. Um, They also asked for the chief diversity officer to report directly to the CEO, which would be an effective promotion of that position. Um, They wanted uh, an employee to have a seat on Google's board, uh, in addition to making sure that what Google calls TVCs, which are temps, vendors, and contractors, so not direct employees, which actually make up more than half of the people who work for Google right now, they wanted to make sure that those people were involved in the same system of reporting that employees are, right? So that those people who heavily tend to be women and people of color get the same treatment, but also I think so that all the information is centralized, right? And you don't end up with like missing cases or uh, stuff like that. So I think those are some of the main um, things that people were asking for. And then of course, Google responded and they got some, but not most of those demands met. Right. So let's talk about that in a second, but I wanted to, to highlight the point you made about how it was not just an isolated case of, of, you know, Andy Rubin did something bad and Google handled it badly. Google, if you read stories about the early days of Google, there was 
all kinds of stuff going on uh, in terms of sex and relationships that should not be going on in an office. And it was kind of, I think it was you know, the, the culture, not to say that everybody did this individually, but the culture at large kind of laughed it off uh, for a while. Like, oh, you know, those nerds uh, with their lack of inhibition. Um, and now we're at a moment where nobody's laughing that stuff off anymore. Um, definitely has to do with the Me Too movement. But yeah, let's talk about what has changed. I know that one of the demands that Google acceded to was the end of binding arbitration in sexual harassment cases. Why was that important? The issue of forced arbitration is an interesting one. Basically, it's this question of if you sue your employer or your former employer, if you've signed an arbitration clause, uh, they can have the case removed from the court. And basically, the negotiations any settlement, all of that has to happen behind closed doors. So this is the same trend in legal contracts that has led to things like the Uber misclassification lawsuit around whether or not the Uber drivers should be considered independent contractors or employees. Arbitration clauses have been used there to shut those cases down and to get the the classes dissolved so that it, individuals have to negotiate with Uber individually, right? It's the same thing, um, but now it, going forward in cases of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, Google is saying they will waive those agreements for employees who want to sue. So that means that those cases, the evidence, all of that would play out in a public format. Um, and what's interesting is that since Google made that announcement, Facebook uh, has followed suit Airbnb has followed suit. So what we're starting to see, I think, is a shift in the trend there. Of course, I would say that an important caveat is like who gets to determine whether a, a lawsuit or a specific case meets the standard for that. Is that the company that gets to decide or would a court get to decide? sort of remains to be seen. But just I think the fact of having those allegations in public would make a big difference because I think like I said, there's a difference between rumors. Some of the things that were in the New York Times article had been rumors bouncing around inside of Google, but the question of actually having it on the record um, for everyone to see and everyone to have the same information does make a big difference. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned the culture at Google uh, being sort of wild back in the day. And I think people do talk about companies maturing, right? Like the culture changing and all of that. But I think what the New York Times article sort of highlighted and what made people react so strongly is that they really laid out the difference in consequences for the men involved versus the women involved, right? A man gets a $95 million payout. Um, a woman ends up leaving the company and, and you know, her career in law does not progress nearly to the degree of the, the man she was involved in a romantic relationship with, right? A culture can mature and change, but I think for the individuals involved, you start to see a pattern where the the women are sort of struggling more in their careers or not receiving the same rewards as the men are. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, it goes beyond just Google. Um, the tech industry isn't the only industry this, with this problem, but it is certainly a really serious gender imbalance in Silicon Valley and especially at the highest levels of tech companies. And it seems like that trickles down throughout the culture. Um, and uh, you reported at the time when you went to the walkouts that some of the women uh, employees of Google at the walkouts were sharing their stories of being sexually harassed um, within the company. So obviously, this is an issue that continues today. What did they not get that they still want? What is still on the agenda that Google has not done to address these problems? 
Mm -hmm. So they did not decide thus far to uh, raise the the level of the chief diversity officer to be reporting to the CEO. There is someone, unsurprisingly, no Google employee on Google's board as of this time. Um, From talking to uh, both employees of Google and some people involved in an organization called the Tech Workers Coalition, I think uh, one concern that employees are going to be pushing with Google is the the differentiation between how temps vendors and contractors are treated at the company and how employees are treated at the company, especially because, like I said before, there there is a, a gender and racial difference between those two groups of people. And then there's also a great difference in compensation, protections, benefits. And I think that some of the Googlers who are employees are starting to get um, uncomfortable with those differences. And I think some of the contractors are starting to get fed up and really frustrated. So uh, after the walkout, Google, when Google announced some of the changes that it would be making, especially around arbitration and uh, other things to do with their process, they sent Sundar Pichai, the Google CEO, sent out an email to, to staff about the changes that contractors didn't receive, you know, and contractors were not invited to go to the town hall meeting where executives tried to address the different claims and everything that had happened, the walkout to apologize, all of those things um, are, are not something that the temp vendors and contractors are included in. And like I said, they make up more than half of the people who are working at Google. So I think from what I've heard, I would expect to see more pushback around that. Although it's at this point something that's so embedded into the way Google's business is structured. I don't know. Um, and considering legally, you know, the legal definitions about what you can and can't provide people with, I don't know that we would expect that I would expect to see that change um, super quickly. But I do think that it's something that we'll continue to hear conversations about, especially just because there are so many of those people on Google's campus. And, you know, you mentioned people sharing their stories um, during the walkout. Some of the people who got up and spoke, were, you know, there's a woman who works as a barista on Google's campus, and she was describing being harassed by a customer there, you know. So I think there is an effort to, to try to show that just because people have different legal standing with the company's HR department doesn't necessarily mean that they don't experience the culture in the same way and, you know, have the same consequences. That's a great point. I've really appreciated your reporting over the, the years on the relationship between labor and Silicon Valley. A lot of it was on the gig economy and people who are not employees at these companies. Now we're also seeing um, a lot of changes in the relationship between employees and the companies with employees trying to flex their muscle and affect policy change. Um, Carolina Donovan, thank you so much for joining us on If Then. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with employment economist Tim Bartik on what to make of Amazon's new multiple headquarters. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Our guest today is Dr. Tim Bartik, Senior Economist at the nonpartisan W.E. Upjohn Institute for Employment Research, based in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Dr. Bartik's work focuses on state and local economic development and local labor markets. He's the author of the influential 1991 book, Who Benefits from State and Local Economic Development Policies? And in the past year, he's been doing research that tries to quantify the costs and benefits of various economic development policies, including the incentives that cities offer to try to get companies to locate there. He created and maintained a database of such incentives, which you can find at the Upjohn Institute website if you're interested in that, all of which makes him the perfect person to talk to about Amazon's highly publicized search for a city in which to build a second headquarters. Dr. Bartek, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. So New York City and Washington, D.C., more or less, were the winners of Amazon's big months-long contest. Did that surprise you at all? Uh, no, it didn't surprise me. Uh, I think there are various reasons they might have wanted to choose New York and uh, D.C. I think part of it is they didn't want to be accused of overwhelming the housing market. And New York and D.C. were big enough that though Amazon might have large dollar impacts increasing housing rents, the percentage impacts are likely to be smaller. So it might be a little less political heat for them than they've gotten sometimes in the past in Seattle. Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, that's that's one of the biggest sources of, of criticism locally for Amazon in Seattle is what they've done to the housing market there with, with home prices and rents absolutely skyrocketing, a homeless problem in Seattle that is growing in urgency. So that makes sense from that perspective. Also, in their request for proposals, when they were asking cities to put their best foot forward, one of the big things they talked about was the need for tech talent. That was one of their top priorities. I know that New York and DC are both highly rated in terms of tech talent. Um, It's interesting that that you see housing prices as one of the big factors. Anything else that you could think of that might have tilted the scales in the direction of those two cities? Well, no, I think that's the key factor that that the the politics and also they could get the talent they wanted. You know, it's a case where New York and DC already have these advantages and they're going to be getting even more jobs in the tech sector. All right. So Amazon had this big contest and they announced a short list, which was actually fairly long, of 20 cities that were supposedly in the running to land this headquarters. What do you see as the purpose of that? I mean, was that all just a a publicity stunt or what was in it for Amazon? I think they were interested in increasing incentive offers. I mean, it was pretty clear in their request for proposals. They mentioned that incentives would be considered. They highlighted that, in fact, in their request for proposals. Right. So they're they kind of playing cities against each other as to who could offer the best package of tax breaks and so forth. Right. In part. I also think they have big long-term ambitions for expanding to a variety of places in the U.S. And I suspect some of the cities on their short list will be considered for other Amazon facilities in the future. I mean, I don't know if we'll become like, you know, the old Sears was or something where there's Amazon facility everywhere, but they may have quite a presence in many more places in the future than they now do. I mean, it is important to note that despite this incentive competition, they did not choose the places that offered the largest incentives. As far as we know, the largest offer may have been from Newark. Uh, Chicago also seems to have been pretty large, and Maryland was pretty large, and they didn't go with those offers. So uh, it's pretty clear from this that incentives were not the only factor in the location decision. Yeah, and I think some critics and and some of the cities that participated are feeling a little jilted right now uh, because they bent over backwards to offer all these incentives, and then Amazon didn't choose them. But I wanted to ask you about the findings of your work, which looks at 
what's really in it for cities when they offer these subsidies to companies to locate there? What are some takeaways from your work in terms of the ways in which a city might benefit and the ways that it might not benefit if they had won a challenge like this? Well, my main point has been to emphasize that the reason you might want to do incentives is you want to improve your local labor market. You want to increase the ratio of employment to population. You want to put upward pressures on real wages. That's the real benefit from doing this, making more and better jobs for the local population. You know, a lot of times you hear claims that this is going to raise all this revenue and there's no cost to these incentives because you're going to get all this tax revenue that will offset it. That's mostly wrong because it doesn't take account of the fact that new jobs attract people and people expect services. And so a lot of times the increased services cost you more than the increased tax revenue. But if you are able to create jobs that local residents can have access to, you can do some really good things for job opportunities for, for the, either the unemployed or the underemployed. In the case of Amazon, the real issue for that is, though, how many entry-level jobs are there actually in these facilities? I mean, are they, are they just going to bring in people from outside for these jobs? Or are there going to be any jobs left for local residents? That's a great question. Of course, New York City and D.C. had no shortage of high-paying jobs already. When a city competes to bring a headquarters to town, you mentioned there that there can be pitfalls. What's sort of a worst-case scenario in terms of, let's say, a city offered all these tax breaks, Amazon moved to town? You know, What's the downside? Well, the worst-case scenario would be that essentially employment and population both go up by the same percent. So you haven't improved your labor market at all. And a still worst case scenario would be, what if you paid for the incentive by cutting back on, say, public schools? I mean, there's more to economic development than handing out cash to companies. What, what really drives a, a local economy? I mean, it's, it's a variety of things, but the skills of the local workforce are absolutely key. If you have lousy schools, that, can, that, that has more consequences for your long-term economic development than whether or not you hand out a lot of cash to a few big companies. Right. So if cities have to compromise funding for their schools to attract the company, that could be a net loss. Maybe any city that was trying to do that should be thankful that they didn't get the Amazon headquarters. But I've been thinking about this a little bit because when you think of some of the cities that today are rated the best places to live, a lot of times they have a big high profile employer there who's sort of an anchor. I'm wondering, like, let's say Rochester, Minnesota. I don't know if they had to offer incentives to the Mayo Clinic all those decades ago. But now that it's there, I mean, it really drives the local economy. And it, it seems to be a very highly rated place to live. Is it possible that there are sort of gains that are hard to measure in the short term to a city's prestige, its reputation, its uh, maybe the you know wealthy locals who can fund local institutions, that kind of thing? Well, I don't think that's true for Amazon in New York or D.C. They have plenty of large businesses, large organizations that provide anchors. I can see that would be true for a small town. I mean, if you have a small town and there's a major employer that's lost, that's devastating. And vice versa, if you're a small rural county and you attract a major employer that pays decent wages, and uh, that that's extraordinary transformation for the community. But I think for most larger cities, the more reliable way to promote long-term growth is not so much putting bets on a few big companies, but trying to grow your small and medium-sized businesses, trying to encourage startups, trying to encourage expansions of existing business. I mean, most cities of any size have some 
local business sector that they can strengthen through providing business services, through enhancing job training, through uh, you know small business development centers, uh, a host of things, manufacturing extension services that help people become more competitive. There are political reasons why a lot of governors and mayors emphasize handing out cash to large companies. It gets a lot more public attention. Uh, you can pat, it's easy to hand out cash. There's no complicated services to figure out. And you can pass on a lot of the costs to the next governor or mayor. Whereas trying to figure out how to create a kind of an ecosystem for startup businesses, for small businesses, for medium-sized businesses, is a lot more complicated. And it's harder to explain to the public, to the news media. It, it, there's not as many. The ribbon cutting for Amazon will surely get more attention than the ribbon cutting for well, there isn't a ribbon cutting when you start up 100 small businesses or expand 100 small. There, there is no ribbon cutting. Right. And that actually brings up another instance of city subsidies to a company that I wanted to bring up. Wisconsin, under Governor Scott Walker, had offered a massive package of subsidies to Foxconn, the Chinese manufacturing giant, which, among other things, helps to manufacture Apple products, uh, to come and locate in their state. Governor Walker is no longer the governor in Wisconsin after the midterms. I imagine that this huge package of $4.1 billion in subsidies, which some have called a boondoggle, will now get more scrutiny. Um, have you looked at, at what might be the costs or benefits for Wisconsin there and whether that's a wise move on their part? I don't think there's any way the Foxconn deal is going to pay off for Wisconsin. You have to understand the Foxconn deal was way beyond even any of the Amazon offers, as far as you can figure out. I mean, the typical incentive offer in the U.S. is equivalent to giving a 3% wage subsidy for about 20 years. Foxconn's over 30% of wages for 20 years. That's what it's equivalent to. It's over 10 times the usual thing. If you just think about it, the government cannot go around offering every company or even every manufacturing company, or even every new manufacturing company, 30% of wages. At some point, you might as well just hire people directly. I mean, and you can't afford to do it. I mean, it would use up the entire state budget. So I, my prediction is 10, 15 years from now, politicians in Wisconsin who voted for this package will be pretending they never heard of it. And people will point to this as a disaster. In the Foxconn case, the other issue is, Half the package doesn't depend on jobs created, just depends on investment. So if Foxconn goes in and they roboticize this factory so that the whole factory is being run by, well, this is extreme, it's being run by one executive in China remotely, and it's all robots, Wisconsin will still have to pay half the money, $2 billion. For what? No jobs, just robots. Uh, why that would be considered a good idea, I don't know. Now, who knows what's going to happen? I, I don't know the, his, the future of robotics and making flat screen TVs. Um, maybe Foxconn is not sure what the future of robotics and making flat screen TVs and how rapidly that technology will improve. But surely there's a substantial risk that, in fact, the number of jobs created will be far less than promised. And so this won't just be 10 times the usual package. This might end up being 20 or 30 times. It'll be, it'll be, it, will, it will become a, uh, people will point to this for years as what you shouldn't do in economic development. All right, bringing good robots to town. Um, but it's hard to see what the overall public good is of this bidding war between cities. I mean, sure, maybe you could make the case for it in one city or another. Maybe the city that lands Amazon's headquarters will be better off in some way. But wouldn't we all be better off if 
there was no bidding war in the first place, and Amazon just had to choose the city that worked best for it without getting them all to compromise their uh, their tax structures and so forth. Well, there could be a gain if, in fact, this this competition was something where the places with the highest unemployment were bidding the most. So you could say, well, gee, there's this competition, and at least what's going on is the places with the high unemployment are bidding more, and they're getting more jobs, and they need the jobs. And the places that already have jobs are not bidding, but that's not what's going on. It looks like a governor and mayor, regardless of unemployment rate, is is just drawn like a moth to the flame to want to make these huge cash bids for large companies, Uh, especially long-term incentive offers that someone, some future governor or mayor has to pay for. So, you know, we have this problem that the evidence suggests that every city and state does this. There's no sign that the more disadvantaged areas are benefiting. So the only real solution to it is some type of federal regulation of it to hold it back. The pro- the challenge is, you know, we have state sovereignty in the in the U.S. So we have, you know, we, uh, I mean, a lot of what happens to the U.S. with incentives will be illegal in the European Union. Right. So uh, let me ask you one more question. It's one I have a feeling my co-host April Glazer would ask if she, if she was here. Who benefits from these jobs? I mean, I guess it depends on what type of jobs they are. Uh, Amazon obviously has um, headquarters in Seattle, and that's done one thing to Seattle uh, Seattle's economy and real estate. In a lot of other cities across the country, it has um, distribution warehouses. Um, it's It announced, in fact, today, as we're recording this, it announced that it will build a logistics hub in Nashville. Have you done any work on on what type of people benefit from jobs when a company is bought to ta- brought to town? Yeah, I've done work on that. I mean, on the whole, it looks as if job growth tends to have somewhat progressive effects on the distribution of income in the sense that it helped, it tends to help the lowest, the lower income quintiles, like the bottom three-fifths of the income distribution, the bottom 60% tends to benefit more than the top 40%. Because the top 40% presumably already had good jobs. Yeah, well, they, they, they tend to be more than non-employed. And so the people in the bottom 60% either tend to be unemployed well, more than not, or more likely to be unemployed or underemployed. Now, I do think it matters what the jobs are. So that's why I asked this, point, asked this question, you know, in Amazon's case, how many entry-level jobs does Amazon actually have? I mean, if they have, a, you know, maybe they have more than we think uh, and therefore would have more benefits potentially for uh, unemployed or underemployed New Yorkers. The other issue would be, you know, how good is your local workforce system of getting people into those jobs? And so a lot would depend on, are we able to get Amazon to seriously consider hiring currently unemployed or underemployed people referred by the local workforce system? If we can't do that, I mean, if we, if we, the extent we can do that, that makes it somewhat more progressive. So Progressivity is not necessarily baked into job growth. It's something that policy can advance. I mean, if the local unemployment rate is higher, you tend to have more progressivity. I mean, because then there are more non-employed to be hired and you have more of an effect on that and less in-migration to an area when you have job growth. On the other hand, if the unemployment is really low, you have more in-migration, more upward pressure on housing prices. And a lot of the job growth just ends up increasing property values and benefiting people who own property, which is not the reason we want to, you know, the purpose of economic development should not be to make capital gains for, for property owners. That's not a uh, sound public purpose. Why on earth should the general taxpayer pay to augment the wealth of property owners? That doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah, that's a great point, and it, and it supports what was my biggest concern about this, which is that it seemed like Amazon's HQ2 might be a chance to build up some other city in the United States that could really use it, and instead it's going to go to make the you know two of the richest cities in the country even richer uh, in employment. Right. In this country, you know, given, of course, recent political events and whatnot, we need to think seriously about how we deal with some of the geographic disparities we have in this country, where there are places being left behind. Some of them are rural areas, some of them are cities, some of them are neighborhoods. And we need to think a little bit about how we address that. I mean, are there ways we can either uh, help increase skills of people in those places so they can succeed better? Or are there ways we can, in some cases, increase jobs in those places? We need to think very seriously about how we help the places left behind because uh, People there are somewhat bitter over the lack of economic opportunity they face, even when the national economy is doing well. Tim Bartik, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take one final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we saw on the web this week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting stories we saw online this week. And for Tabs Today, I'm joined by our producer, Max Jacobs. As you know, if you're a longtime listener, Max has produced this show from the very start. He's a big part of making it what it is. As you may not know, unless you're a big podcast buff, Max also produces Slate Money, and he was the producer of Isaac Chotner's great interview show, I Have to Ask. Before he came to Slate, he produced the show Politically Reactive. Max, it's great to have you on the show that you uh, make happen every week. <laughs> Thank you, Will. Good to be on. Okay, well, I will start by asking you what tab you could not close this week. My tab this week is headlined The Problem with Feedback. It was published in The Atlantic, but it actually is originally from an essay series 
called Object Lessons. You can find it online at objectsobjectsobjects.com. Um, and uh, one of the senior editors is Ian Bogost, who's one of my favorite Twitter follows for uh, commentary about technology and its role in our lives. This story by Megan Ward, who's an English professor at Oregon State, traces the concept of industrial feedback mechanisms through history. So she starts at James Watt's invention of the steam governor for steam engines in the 18th century, um, goes through Norbert Wiener's coinage of the term cybernetics. Uh, that was to describe feedback loops of information. Um, it was a seminal concept in uh, a lot of today's information economy. Um, and she traces it to today's apps and online services that build customer star ratings right into the product. Uh, Ward talks about having feedback fatigue. Uh, she writes, after a recent Uber ride, I hesitated between offering the four-star rating that captured my adequate ride and the five-star rating that I knew the driver expected. Eventually, I tapped five stars and closed out of the app, relieved to be done with this tiny moral quandary. Um, so it's just a, a, a fun and uh, perceptive look at the role that feedback has taken on in our lives, thanks to the tech industry and the fascination with star ratings and how we've become a cog in the tech machine. We are the proverbial steam governor now. Mm. I will definitely check that out. And I can tell you, as somebody who works in the podcast industry, there is constant chatter about things like iTunes star ratings and like how you can boost you know, your show in the Apple store. And uh, so this is sort of interesting, given that situation that we're constantly trying to figure out oh yeah and we appeal, we appeal to our listeners every show to rate us yes in the yes. store so we're we apologize for contrib contributing to your feedback fatigue unfortunately this is the system that we live in and we we still even i'm just going to go ahead and be hypocritical i still want you to go and review our show if it you definitely like doesn't hurt <laughs> doesn't hurt us anyway all right max um what did you want to talk about for tabs this week sure so i actually have a couple and the first it just seemed like it was worth mentioning, and this actually was something we had talked about um, just as a team earlier in April had brought it up. Um, just the, the awful fires that are happening in California right now, it seemed worth mentioning, even though not necessarily uh, specifically a tech thing related to our show. But as listeners will know, April is currently lives in the Bay Area. Uh, will and myself are recent East Coast transplants, but we spent, I think, most of our lives in California. Is that right, Will? Yeah, I spent a chunk of it, not not most, but I know you've you've been out there for a long time. Um, and last year, I vividly recall um, the fires that came right up to the city yeah. where I was living, Santa Barbara. Um, this year, they're even worse, and it's crazy. They they just get worse every year. Like last year, they were the worst fires in history, and this year, again, they're the worst fires in history. And and this year, it's it's exponential. I mean, there's 200 people missing at last count, 42 people dead. It's just it's just a tragedy of epic proportions. It is. And it, you know, as somebody who grew up in California, like this was not something we expected. You know, you went to school and you did earthquake drills, right? You did fire drills, but you weren't thinking about forest fires in that case. April actually had a, a tweet earlier that I thought was worth mentioning. Imagine if New York media had to go to work in masks. What would the national coverage of the deadly fires look like then? And it did seem like a point worth just noting. Obviously, this has been awful for the people like immediately in the area of the fires. But if you're in California, like this is absolutely affecting you. And if you just look at an air quality map, chances are um, at this moment, you're advised not to be spending too much time outside. 
uh, not to be exercising. It really is like a it's it's smothering to everybody in that area. Um, so I guess my tab for the week is just wanted to post it a couple links of places uh, that might be helpful for people who are supporting the efforts, um, people who are victims of the fire, some of which are like GoFundMe pages for people who actually are dealing with this. Some of them are links from like a local newspaper um, in Chico that just suggested good places to give. So we'll put that in our show page. That's great. So yes, you can go to the page on slate.com for this episode and find those links if you want to get involved and help out somehow. Absolutely. Absolutely. I did have another tab, um, something a little more lighthearted and perhaps uplifting since um, I'm always pushing Will and April to uh, to bring in something positive to end the show um, with mixed You are, and you're finally you're making it happen. If you want something done right, you have to do it yourself next. <laughs> so I'll end with this tab. It's actually a video that Congresswoman Martha McSally posted on Twitter today. This was from her campaign for Senate, actually. That's in Arizona. That's in which, Arizona, yeah. yeah. Uh, which was one of the most tightly contested races from last week. Um, in the last few days, it started to look like her opponent, Democrat uh, Kristen Cinema, was going to end up winning. So today she posted this, just like a short little video conceding the race. It was very gracious. She congratulated her opponent. I thought it was significant for two reasons. Uh, the first, which I hate to say, but given this election and how toxic it's been, <laughs> somebody that lost a narrow election that wasn't, you know, crying fraud or making statements that generally give me anxiety about uh, <laughs> eroding public trust in elections was, was sort of a nice moment. But really the highlight for me was uh, the co-star of the video, which was her golden retriever um, sitting next to her on the couch. I didn't actually play the audio of this because I hope people just go watch it so you can see um, you can see the dog who basically spends half of the video trying to like do the shake command, I think. Anyway, it was very charming. It just occurred to me like it was a nice, uh, you know, not everything is awful moment that I saw on Twitter today. Yeah. And it, it wasn't for lack of pressure, right? I mean, there was some reporting that that McSally was facing pressure from the national GOP party, maybe from the Trump administration mm. to raise the specter of uh, voting problems or fraud or that kind of thing. And she didn't do it. She said, no, I'm going to go out with grace. She conceded the race. And I realized I should uh, speak carefully here and just clarify when talking about people crying voter fraud, particularly I'm talking about issues where candidates have said this without actually providing any evidence. So, And also, I was not talking about voter suppression, which has been obviously a significant issue, especially in a state like Georgia, where a candidate like Stacey Abrams, who still may lose, but who has brought this to attention. Um, and I think it's very important. So want to make sure uh, there's no confusion there. Max, not only did you get not only did you get someone uh, preserving the fabric of our democracy in your tab, but you got an adorable dog in there too. So I think you did a I'm fine job of, of too, taking yeah. us out, taking us out on a happy note. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus. April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Tim Bartik. You can find him on Twitter at Tim Bartik. That's B-A-R-T-I-K. And also thanks to Caroline O'Donovan. You can find her at CEO Donovan. 
And thanks to everybody who has left us a comment, a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you for overcoming your feedback fatigue. Um, We really do appreciate it because that's how, for better or worse, that's how people find out about our show in the first place. And without you doing that, Apple's never going to show it to, to other people when they go looking for a tech podcast. Thank you. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Oh, I guess this should be my line. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We will see you next week. Bye.